Well, welcome everybody to the Watchtower, the Sentinel One Watchtower August 2021 webinar. Uh, this is where we review interesting findings from the previous month, uh, interesting intelligence and, and hunting that, that we've reviewed, so uh, that we've covered over the, the previous month. So with us today, you have Drea Petter-London um, from uh, the, the director of our DFER team. We have Naranjan Jayanad, who is one of our lead researchers and hunters from our Watchtower team. And uh, <clears throat> again, we're gonna be reviewing the August Watchtower report, which is everything, uh, well, not even everything. Uh, I, just to be clear, what is Watchtower before we really get started? Uh, Watchtower is intelligence-driven threat hunting. So it is our group that is focused on determining what is happening in the cyber threat landscape every single month, really every single day, every time something new hits. And uh, they utilize operational intelligence, open source intelligence, closed source intelligence, the news, everything really as, as a way of determining what we're going to hunt for, for our customers. Everybody who is a Sentinel One Vigilance or uh, MDR customer or one of our DFER customers, they receive this hunting across their entire environment. Uh, we find it's very, we feel it's very, very important to have this proactive element, uh, always be waiting for detections and, and have the best AI and the best detection and the best uh, ability in the world for that. But we also want to be that, that arm that is proactively looking for the newest and most active threats. And that's what we are. Uh, and to be able to do that effectively, you have to really be a very powerful intelligence organization combined with a powerful hunting organization. So that's what Watchtower brings to the table for our customers. So <clears throat> every, uh, every month we release our report. It's really a threat hunting digest. This is something that our customers receive and they know they, they have that peace of mind to know, hey, this has been hunted for within my environment. Uh, and they may, if they get a notation from us, it says, hey, we found something to be, that needs, uh, needs to be looked at, and then we look into it. Otherwise, they receive this report and it shows them that, uh, wow, all this has been hunted in my environment and I'm clean. We provide two versions of the report. There's TLP White, which we will provide as part of this webinar. Um, it'll be publicly available tomorrow, but as uh, somebody that is in this webinar, in fact, we can go ahead and put that up in the chat right now, uh, if we could do that. And that way you can go ahead and download <clears throat> and, uh, and view and, and read. Now, and just to be clear, the difference between the TLP white and the TLP amber versions are the TLP white is it has the stories um, and it has definitely some technical content as well. Um, but it really gives the idea of who is behind the attacks, who's behind the spikes that we're seeing, who's behind the different campaigns we saw active throughout July and into August, right? Um, and, and when are these, uh, when did they happen? Who do we see being targeted? what regions, what industries, uh, all of that, right? And all this information and, and how does it happen? All that's within the white uh, version, <clears throat> which can be publicly put out on LinkedIn, put it wherever you'd like. Um, now the TLP Amber version is something we only provide to our direct Watchtower clients. And that's something that goes in much more depth with deep visibility, Yara rules for searching, reverse engineering and forensic investigation of the various threats. And it gives a oftentimes very sensitive intelligence that, that shows how we're finding these bad guys. And we, we prefer not to, um, not to let that out on the open internet. So that's what Watchtower is, is a quick recap. Now, as you can see from the table of contents here, 
we had to kind of restructure this webinar a little bit. We added a lightning round at the end because there is just so much in that July, August timeframe of, uh, of active attacks. Uh, some of the key things we're talking about, huge story uh, on Conti and, and their, their playbook leak and what a goldmine that was for us as researchers and any security research um, intelligence analyst out there. So we'll dive into that. We're gonna talk about the SolarWinds serve you and, and even we have some brand new findings on that that we're gonna share right here in this uh, webinar. And we're gonna try to update our report with these new findings. It's just new things that have come out on how the attackers uh, are, are using the infrastructure. So big stuff. <clears throat> uh, Kandaroo is a, is a mercenary, not a mercenary, it's a offensive company out in Israel. And you found that a lot of their the exploits that they sell pseudo legitimately being used by various APT threat actors for surveillance. Uh, so we've seen a lot of that. Hive Nightmare was a big story. We hunted heavily in that. Black Matter and Dark Side was interesting in the sense of, is this a reincarnation of, of Dark Side? Hard to say. We're going to dig into that a little bit. Revol, Mosaic Loader, Paisa ransomware, Ababak ransomware, uh, and TrickBot, which Boy, you know, didn't we think that was kind of dying down when Emotech got crushed or got, you know, sent down? Kind of, but suddenly we're seeing it spike back up again. So we'll talk about that. Uh, and then new new malware we found in this in the criminal forums, right? The, the kind of the cybercrime underground. Uh, all these things are things we're going to talk about. There's a couple other. Oh, Sock Goldish. I can't miss that one. That was a really big one. It's the last one. Usually we have uh, the bigger stories up front, but Sock Goldish was actually very, very prevalent. Uh, in, the, in the last month. So with that said, as a very brief intro, I'm gonna jump right into handing this over to Drea, uh, which she'll talk about Conti. I think you're on mute, Drea. Oh, rookie mistake. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, the, the Conti playbook leak was obviously a pretty significant moment this month for a lot of security researchers and enterprise security professionals. So we're just going to talk a little bit about, about that and what that means. Um, Brian, if you can go. Thanks. So we know that affiliates play a key role in any ransomware as a service success. So it makes sense that they, of course, get some sort of share of profits uh, that, that the larger ransomware gang may acquire. For the most part, these affiliates tend to be mercenaries that are hired to compromise networks from around the world. The higher the value of the target usually is the higher their payment. Um, after they compromise uh, a, a target, they tend to just kind of hand the keys over to the core ransomware gang who will then kind of proliferate the ransomware, leak data, do kind of the dirty work. On August 5th this month, a former affiliate of the Conti ransomware gang posted a number of what I guess the best way to refer to training documents on a Russian language forum. He was not happy about his payment, whether that was that he didn't get paid or he thought he should have been paid more or maybe a combination of both. At the end of the day, he was unhappy with his working conditions and was adamant about making that known. Um, based on the data that he leaked and chatter on the forum that sort of happened afterwards, it appears that the affiliates of the Conti Ransomware uh, Collective 
get paid around $1,500 per target, which does seem sort of like peanuts compared to the high ransom demands that this particular collective are uh, known to, to demand. So the documents that were leaked for the most part were pen test affiliate onboarding documents. They provided instructions and manuals about how to carry out an attack, literally in a, you know, sometimes in step-by-step -step manner. Um, it also included a couple, I think, tools. So some cobalt strike tools and a bunch of la uh, Russian language text documents. Some of the titles of those documents were things like disabling defender and how and what information to download. So again, very, very explicit direction on how to carry out an attack. The affiliate that publicized the data, he did eventually get banned uh, from the group and his content was taken down. But prior to that, he claimed that less than 30% of the content uh, was actually released and that he had left out anything important that could compromise future uh, operations, which is interesting because, you know, there was quite a bit of content there. What we, uh, you know, we did get useful information out of that leak. There were a lot of tools, like I mentioned, um, a list of Cobalt Strike server, server IPs. Most of that information we were able to validate either by previous investigations or intelligence. There was also some interesting information that came not necessarily directly a, as a part of the leak, but the chatter in the forums that followed what happened. Uh, affiliates were very vocal about their working conditions and their opinions of leadership. So there was just some operational information there that, that we gleaned. You wanna go to the next slide? So in May, the FBI released a TLP white flash report about Conti. There's some interesting metrics that came out of this. Just want to kind of go over with everybody. Uh, at that point, more than 400 organizations had been victimized. 290 of them were United States corporations. Our watchtower hunters have been researching new detection methods to proactively detect Conti behavior in our customer networks because it is so prolific. Uh, you can see that the data exfiltration and leaks associated with gang or, this gang are very high, higher than any other. Uh, their ransom demands have reached as high as 25 million US dollars. And I think it's also interesting as an instant responder, um, the dwell time that we see with, with this group is anywhere between four days and up to three weeks. So they definitely take their time. They have a surgical approach to their efforts and uh, will make sure they accomplish what they want before they, they leave. Uh, one differentiator about Conti is that they're somewhat ruthless and inconsiderate about the businesses that they attack. They do not seem to care that, you know, if, if their efforts create IT outages, even in life-threatening consequences, they, they don't seem to care very much. I know they did respond somewhat to um, political shifts and, and some pressure from law enforcement recently. So uh, they, they were known to have compromised Ireland's Department of Health. And when doing so, they were pressured into decrypting uh, the data. The, the Department of Health said they weren't going to pay the ransom. So the gang offered to give them the decryption key, which was great, except that the caveat to that was, well, they're still going to post all their sensitive data publicly for no reason other than, I think, to kind of just prove, prove a point. And this is somewhat different. A lot of the ransomware gangs or other ransomware gangs are known to have some, I hate to use the word integrity because there's clearly they're criminals, right? But they want to provide great customer service. They recognize that if they don't, folks won't ever pay the ransom, right? Because they want to make sure that if they're going to give over that much money, 
they can trust the, the gang to provide them with the decrypted files and to destroy their data. That does not seem to be the case all the time with Conti. I think it's certainly most of the time, but there has been evidence in the past and in historical incidents where they either only provided a portion or none of the, the recovered data after receiving ransom demands. Next slide. So just some overview uh, on Conti and their methods. They are known to work with trick bot and bizarre actors in the past. Um, above, you can kind of see a breakdown of the different tools that they use in their operations. For initial access, they have two primary methods. Uh, spear phishing emails that'll lead to cobalt strike or bizarre payloads. They also have been seen compromising a couple of well-known uh, firewall vulnerabilities. We've seen a lot of that within our own DFER investigations that that was, especially within the last few months, pretty common. Once initial access is gained, network discovery is done again with Cobalt Strike, Bizarre Loader, Advanced IP Scanner. They compromise credentials by dumping LSAS with proc dump. There's also been incidents of them using NTDU to NTDS util against 80 data sets of databases. Um, after they've got those credentials and they've got network topology and understand the, the scope a bit, they use PSExec, SMB, AnyDesk, and some other remote utilities to move uh, around the network. You can see a lower right box there shows some information that we actually collected out of a recent investigation shows their, their use of AnyDesk in that case. Um, they also use kill modules as a defense evasion. Uh, again, the, the box right above that you can see examples of those modules. So they're looking for strings that are likely relevant to security detection solutions. Um, and so, you know, quite clear there what that intent is. They use 7-zip and rclone to compress and upload their cloud storage or their files to their cloud storage providers. And then post exfiltration, they distribute and execute ransomware via scheduled tests and remote to onto remote systems. So very, again, just kind of an overview of their behavior um, see them using, again, a lot of the Cobalt Strike and Bizarre Loader uh, payloads, not, not too uh, dissimilar to a lot of other ransomware affiliate groups. That is it. Our old friend Cobalt Strike, huh? Yeah, it seems like everybody uses Cobalt Strike. I mean, if we can find that well, that's a, definitely a good one to pivot on because um, everybody seems to try to employ it at some point, at least recently. Um, yeah, so Dre, a great overview. I really appreciate it. This was, um, to, from my point of view, one of the most interesting events to occur in cybersecurity in, in, in recent memory. I mean, I think it was uh, <clears throat> um, just, just the, the, this treasure trove of data. I know that our Watchtower team took um, you know, all this Russian language, we had our linguists go through it and, and, and uh, translate it. So, uh, you know, step-by-step -step instructions for attackers, for these paid affiliates on how to break into victim endpoints, victim uh, networks, super interesting. And the tools they used, it's almost like going to a, you know, a, a, a pen tester course, a really detailed, explicit notebooks and textbooks um, to get certified as, uh, you know, the advanced pen tester. It's all, all like similar to that kind of thing. So it's just, in, to me, it's fascinating to see when they're onboarding new affiliates and training their new affiliates, 
just how detailed they are in, in, in their training and, and what they give their affiliates to in order to compromise these networks. And then when it all falls on our lap from a disgruntled insider, we're able to translate. I know Watchtower made 40 behavior at least, a lot of different atomic IOCs. We've talked before in these webinars about the difference between atomic and behavioral and how we like to, to, to focus more on behavioral because you know atomic IOCs, hashes, IPs, domains, they change all the time. But we find good behavioral IOCs, they're gonna last across multiple campaigns. Uh, so, and families of malware sometimes. So, you know, we got a ton of different good behavioral uh, uh, queries to hunt for. So for us, it was a gold mine. And I, I mean, I just think it's really interesting because it's this disgruntled insider, this, this situation. I mean, I always find it interesting how we have the, the similarities between our legitimate organizations and the cybercrime underground. And I think this is a great example of they were not paying their affiliates well. They, uh, it, it, they were not, uh, they're not, you know, the work-life balance wasn't good. And these affiliates are, you know, they're there to get their money. They're there to, this is their job, breaking into, into organizations that we protect, they're trying to break in, that, that the security community across the world is trying to protect. And this is their job. And, and they want a good work-life balance. They want to get some days off for vacation. They want to get good competitive pay. And Conti wasn't providing it. Uh, so this, the result is the, this massive leak of data from a disgruntled insider. I mean, so I mean, what what are your thoughts, Drea uh, or Naranjan, as far as what lesson can legitimate companies take from this clear insider threat? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize your employees and their worth and value, and frankly, the risk that they can pose to your organization and the reality was is these individuals have a lot of valuable information and in one way or another were, were not treated either fairly or, or uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way. We see similarities with threat actors, um, you know, looking for insiders at large corporations to kind of bring into the fold and assist in their in their targets and they they try to leverage those same types of, of disgruntled employee issues. So I think it's, you know, to some degree, very typical of Conti. They don't seem to have the best personalities, right? They're, they're, they don't care much for the public in general. So I guess it's not terribly surprising that they may not be the, the best employers, but we can definitely take from this and recall that, or, or recognize, I suppose, that it is important to to make sure your employees, especially those that have very, very sensitive, damaging information for you are um, well cared for and in a good place um, and or limit that kind of information from, from access. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, and it's not just the malicious insider threat we need to worry about, right? There's, um, uh, which is in this situation, right? They, they weren't happy. Uh, which, you know, who knows, maybe some of our employees or employees for, you know, across the world, our listeners, they may just be not happy. Um, and that's the malicious insider threat. But there's also the negligent insider threat, like they didn't even know what they were doing. They accidentally um, exposed data that, that's really, really important. Uh, and, and I mean, that's, that's both areas we, we need to be concerned about. We, one way that Sentinel-1 offers um, some protection beyond just what our platform does by default 
Uh, our Watchtower Pro uh, is more of a deep dive compromise assessment service, deep dive threat hunting service, where among you know, environmental issues and, and, and policy breakage issues and external advanced APT threat act or malware issues, we also search for insider threats. I mean, that's one way to look for that kind of thing. But um, what else? I mean, what, what would you recommend to a company that is concerned that they don't want to have the same kind of leak that Conti did that impacts their global operations for key internal data what other recommendations can we have for securing against an insider threat? Yeah, I think, you know, it's that layered approach to security, DLP solutions, cloud monitoring, you know, UEBA, behavioral analysis, all of these things have great, uh, you know, capabilities. They're still going to be, you know, they're not faultless, right? It's It can be difficult to correlate information. Oftentimes there's got to be some sort of threshold for alerting where, you know, small amounts of data may not meet that threshold and may not be observed. So making sure that you have that configured in an optimized way. But again, I think, you know, getting into more of a compromise assessment or a hunting perspective helps kind of identify those underlying issues that may not be immediately observed by some of the more automated solutions that we have in place. So, you know, again, I think it takes a little bit of everything to kind of come together and, and have the best approach in this regard. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there was, uh, it's hard, right? I mean, there, there's definitely good ways to go about it, but it's not easy. These are insiders that have legitimate access. They're authorized to be where they are. Um, it, it can get challenging. How do you police that? I mean, we've, in, in some of our compromise assessments, you know, I think, and even just general malware, I don't even want to say just insiders, even our malware. I mean, the most common, one of the most common exfiltration, expo, <laughs> I'm tripping over my tongue, exfiltration methodologies is uploading to Google Docs, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you, can't, you can't turn off Google, right? <laughs> not, not, not successfully. I definitely could impact operations. I know I saw in a previous incident, uh, a developer, who was simply just trying to seek help from the internet resources uh, on, on some configurations within his code. And somebody was working with him on this forum and said, hey, can I see what you're talking about? And he did, he posted code with credentials in into this site, posted it onto the internet. And it's things like that that, are, like you mentioned, are, are negligent insider, unnoticed, oftentimes take a while for anybody to identify. And then you've got a big mess on your hands of how long was that there? And how do I figure out if anybody naughty took it and did something with it, right? So uh, it's definitely those those types of, of incidents, I think, are the ones that uh, are the most difficult to prevent. Yeah. And I've seen other ones uh, uncovered in a hunt where uh, you know, a software development company and a developer who was afraid he might be losing his job decided to have a backup plan and forked the entire GitHub library to his personal GitHub. That's the, that's the key, keys to the kingdom. I mean, this is, uh, these are dangerous things and the things to be concerned about. So, and that's more on the malicious side. So yeah, malicious, negligent, both things as security practitioners we have to be worried about. I'm just glad in this situation, it was Conti that got 
kick in the butt, basically. <laughs> not, not anybody on the good side, but we all got to be worried. All right. Great conversation. I love that story. I think it's super interesting. Um, but we have more to talk about, so much more. So Naranjan, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you to discuss the what's going on with, with Dark Side and Black Matter and, and what's the story? Hey, hi, Brian. Thanks everyone for joining us. So as the best practice, what we do as we come across new malware is that we study thoroughly on the code level, also to identify if there is any code reuse or code overlap with something that we have seen in the past. And during this process, we might come across a lot of variants of a malware family that shares technicalities, capabilities, and some functional blob of code uh, across multiple variants. So that was spotted when we analyzed Black Matter and Dark Side ransomware. So Black Matter as, to, as, as a ransomware service was completely new was foreseen somewhere in and um, it was spotted in an underground where they promised that they won't be hitting hospitals and few other industry sectors. Um, the same text was seen in their leak screen as well. The, the bottom left corner, black in color. So this group was operating kind of in a very aggressive, within a couple of days, they were able to uh, earn around $4 million. That's the Bitcoin wallet uh, detail that you see there. Uh, they, they were successful in getting four transactions, summing up to a total of $4 million in a very, very short time. And uh, they have released decrypted tools to specific organizations, but it was also found in an open source intelligence data set. And clearly the strings told that it belonged to Black Matter Decryptor. A famous um, researcher and CTO of Amisoft, Fabian Welser, reviewed the decrypted tool and he did also mentioned that uh, there was this decrypted tool showed some similarity traits with um, dark side ransomware that was written by us. I mean, that was researched by us uh, in our earlier Watchtower report. Uh, please check that out for in-depth analysis and research done on dark side. So to sum up on the similarities that were seen between these two ransomware variants, uh, both shared some similarity when they were trying to resolve API and necessary DLLs uh, on the fly before execution, which we'll uh, discuss in the next slide. Both used uh, config in an encrypted format and they were decrypting it using API compression. Uh, and uh, one core difference was that Black Matter observed in two different variants. Oh, and 2.0, the second version was just a couple of days back, but both the variants were connecting to one same um, C2 domain. So it was easy for us to hunt because we had behavioral uh, rules written for this particular variant of ransomware and we found the hash that was connecting to it. And it was also reported by a few other researchers and they tweeted about it as well. One main difference that we saw between Black Matter and Dark Side is like Black Matter was able to encrypt um, machines with keyboard layouts having Russian um, keyboard layout design. So most likely many ransomwares would not encrypt files uh, if they identify a set of, but this one was uh, encrypting even the Russian keyboard layout was found. And uh, both of them used Salsa and RSA for file content encryption and key encryption respectively. Uh, 
uh, which is very uh, similar between the two variants of ransomware. Uh, those are just a couple of them, but uh, we also analyzed reveal in the past. Uh, one difference between reveal and these two variants is that the config structure of reveal is in JSON format. You would identify that when you reverse engineer it. Whereas um, for black matter and dark, dark side, you will have the config in a separate section of the file. Uh, so it's easy to identify when you hey, And this particular slide shows you about, yes, Brian? Well, I think the audio is good, Brian. The audio is not great. Maybe if you turn off your video, it might uh, be a little better for the audio. I'm just wondering because it's, it's kind of having some um, audio issues. Sure, sure. I'm doing that right now. I already is it started. better now, Brian? Yes. Okay. So this particular slide shows some reverse engineering notes from us. Uh, both the variants of ransomware uh, families, you know, uh, both this were using API hashing. And these are some of the code that was responsible for identifying what were the APIs that were getting uh, resolved as you debug the code. And after a stage, you would see all the necessary DLLs uh, used by the ransomware and all the API functions and strings getting deobfuscated. Uh, another difference that we can say about these two ransomware families is that uh, the black matter uh, ransomware would post information on the victim machines uh, as shown in this image in an encoded format, but uh, dark matter was actually posting it in more of a JSON format. So uh, we would say like, you know, as we continue researching on this uh, ransomware families or any other malware families, there could be some common traits on which behavioral indicators or rules could be built and it definitely helps hunters to proactively identify some traits of these malware infections in the environment for sure. So that's from this side. Brian, next slide, please. So speaking of ransomware rebranding and watchtower coverage, we have been closely monitoring uh, on ransomware rebranding and how they call themselves and how they operate. We also keep a close watch on how they change their tools and techniques uh, that they use during their attack. Uh, this particular image was taken from Krebs uh, report. We maintain something very similar internally as well. And I've been maintaining that for quite some time now. But one key point that we want to highlight to uh, our listeners and customers is that uh, if you see the table on the top right side, you would see like close to about six different ransomware groups have been monitored, researched, and all those details have been shared in our TLP Amber uh, Watchtower report in, in with utmost details. Uh, you could see the months low. So close to about three or four months, we covered six different ransomware groups in total. And TLP Amber report would generally have details where we break down the attack stages, highlighting the different tools uh, that are used at different kill chain stages. As Ria showed the previous slide, we also reverse engineer the code, identify the code overlap, share Yara rules and divisibility rules that could be used by threat hunters. We also give insights from the underground forums that we pivot through to identify what different affiliates talk or chat about uh, you know, conducting an attack or use the leaked data of specific organization. Uh, and we try to inform customers in a proactive way. 
Nice. That's that's. I mean, it's it's what. That's great. Thank you for that intro. That that description. What I find really interesting about this attack, right? <clears throat> Dark Side was the organization behind the massive colonial pipeline attack that we saw. When was that? May, June, something like that, right? And in this increasing, what we've witnessed recently, I think in recent times is the uh, push from US government, I think definitely US government, maybe global governments as well, to be more aggressive in how they're responding to these threat actors, especially ransomware threat actors. And uh, in response to the colonial pipeline attack, they took down basically the, the dark side. Dark side was taken down. They were banned. They lost their network infrastructure. They lost millions of dollars in Bitcoin, their finances, um, based on this major takedown. And now, but the question is, right? Now, have, I, my background came from the FBI. That, that's where I got my start, really, in, in chasing down APT nation state threat actors and these cyber criminals. And you know, even with the Bureau, a lot of what we did was monitoring and observing the bad guys. We knew where they were. We knew what they were doing. But once you take action, they disappear. Uh, and, and now you don't know what they're doing. So there's been a battle on policy issues. Like, do we take action to take down the bad guys or not? And I think ransomware is certainly, I mean, when we classify different kinds of threat actors between cyber criminals, nation state, hacktivists, and you know, the various classifications there are, ransomware has always been cyber criminal, right? They're motivated, the primary characteristic of a cyber criminal threat actor is motivated by profit. That's where they've always resided. But I think in some ways, when we look at this movement, you know, these massive attacks like, like uh, on Colonial Pipeline, where this is impacting uh, the gasoline and fuel to, to the Eastern United States, I see uh, the line blurring between cyber criminal and cyber terror. And I think that, that, that we might have a kind of a movement from a cyber criminal organization to a cyber terror organization. And maybe that is part of the motivation for governments to say, you know what, it's time to take action. Uh, because again, um, that's what that is, right? So terrorism is inciting fear amongst a large population. And when we have the Eastern United States waiting in line for hours to get gas for their car, that's inciting fear in, in a form of terrorism, in my opinion, at least. So all this to me is really interesting as we see these things kind of evolve from their traditional classifications into a, a kind of a new way of looking at the world. Um, it's all interpretive, you know, can be interpreted by, by opinion and, and experience and what people think, but that's kind of what I see happening. But this brings us back, sorry, that was a really long-winded explanation of where I was trying to get with my question. My question is this, if we are now taking action, taking down Darkseid, taking down, um, well, who was the one last month, uh, Revil, right? If, if, if these actions are being taken, these big, big major actions, these big takedowns, but then the risk is if we don't actually have real, you know, work with our international law enforcement partners and take, uh, make arrests, put people in jail, and we just are able to do a takedown, then the result is they can just come back, right? And now we have to relearn where they are. 
Uh, again, at, at my at my point of view is I prefer aggressive action. Let's take it and then let's find out where they are and start observing again. But we need to give some level of confidence to the people in our countries and other legitimate countries to, to remove that kind of that almost terrorism type of hold of fear uh, and, and, and reinstill some confidence that we can take action as, as the United States or not. I don't want to be U.S. centric, right? We have UK, all of Western Europe, all, all Australia, everybody's in this battle together, right? So I don't, I'm just from the U.S. and from government, so I kind of default to that. But we're all in this battle together. I support that that proactive action. But the other side of that balance is we lose visibility, right? So I guess um, that was a really long-winded way of saying. I, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Is we don't know, is, is Black Matter the reincarnation of Darkseid? Um, are they just sharing code? Is this Darkseid coming back? What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think this is a continuous battle, uh, Brian. So these guys, I mean, it's not just about ransomware. Banking Trojans in the past have been seen rebranding or adding new modules to itself and then coming back targeting uh, you know, wider audience. So it's the same uh, with ransomware, but they are also feeling the pressure with uh, um, with the dark side going down uh, and FBI taking action. So we do see affiliates under pressure. We see them chatting uh, to other affiliates, criticizing about uh, performance of another payload or criticizing on performance of another ransomware as a service um, and so forth. So there is that human element even across cyber criminals where under pressure, they might uh, create troubles or they might leak as they did um, for Conti uh, ransomware as a service. So we are on a constant lookout. We, it does help like, uh, of course, the pressures put up by governments and other federal organizations and Interpol and so forth. It does add a lot of pressure to them and it helps us um, in some way or the other, we are on a constant lookout for trades, one big mistake, or I would say one big advantage for us is that they use off-the-shelf tools or lol bins. Uh, they not necessarily always come with a new binary as such, or they don't use a whole lot of new tools in their attacks. So our you know, behavioral rules are there, which are quite good enough that would give us traits on uh, who is doing what or possible alerts in a proactive way that could help us identify and you know, inform customers. So um, rebranding or a new ransomware as such, it's not a very big challenge for us. We will definitely detect it, but uh, it's a matter of time. It's a race and hopefully, you know, we'll detect in a very proactive way. Yeah. So really the, just take them down. So your, your thought is if I interpret all that correctly, take them down. And we have our intelligence experts and our, our reverse engineers and our hunters to figure out where they come back and we'll just take them down again and we'll make their life, lives miserable as much as we possibly can until we finally can put them in jail. Yep, and a lot of these attacks are blocked at a very initial stage as well, which are highlighted in our reports and uh, write-ups. So that definitely shows, you know, it's a, it's a race to be very honest. Absolutely. Um, all right. And just to be clear with all of our listeners, do, we cannot say definitively if Black Matter is a reincarnation of Darkseid, 
if they're just sharing some tools, if maybe somebody left Darkside post takedown and joined or created something new. And there, there's, there's not quite enough to say. We don't know all that's going on in the underground, but they are there are clear correlations between Black Matter, this brand new ransomware group that just popped up directly after Darkside went down with clear correlations to, to, to Darkside. So it's kind of a, we don't want to make any blanket statements, but you can draw your own conclusion. So with that said, Drea, um, and again, we, we, we bumped up Sock Golish to a, um, um, a up in our level of importance because this is a major spike that we've seen in, in the last month. I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. So it's become one of our primary topics. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this off to you to talk Sock Golish. Yep. Thank you. So yeah, so Sock Golish, I think one little interesting thing to, to know is the Sock and Sock Golish or Gulish, I guess I could be pronouncing it incorrectly, kind of stands for social engineering. It's their primary tactic, I think, from attack from an attack vector perspective. So if you would go ahead to go to the first slide for me, Brian. There should be one more. There we go. So this slide is not the most beautiful slide, and I apologize. I think I'm just going to try to talk through it. The, at the top, you see the kill chain uh, that these Sokolish campaigns are using. It's pretty simple, right? A user visits a site. They're presented with a malicious zip file that's masquerading as a browser update. Sometimes it's like a Teams update or a different software update. But for, for the purposes of what we've been seeing lately, it's always been a browser update. They click that update, which then uses native Windows tools to execute an embedded malicious JavaScript file. Uh, that then winds up essentially backdooring the endpoint that it's uh, run on. And at that point, we, we see uh, the group kind of run typical uh, comp uh, credential comp uh, dumping tools. They'll move laterally. They um, spend lots of time. In fact, the investigation that I just finished up, they were actually in an environment for nearly a month, um, quietly and stealthily kind of uh, poking around and embedding themselves and building in persistence mechanisms within the environment. Uh, so they're known to kind of, at that point, download and execute different payloads, remote administration tools or ransomware uh, actually as well. Some of the file names associated with Sockulish are things like chromeupdate.js, edge.js, firefox.js, and even opera.js. And the only reason I mentioned that is because it sort of starts to bolster this perspective that these are legitimate files to the end user. It also down the road winds up being helpful for us when we create hunting and we start doing some of our domain research. But the attacker also common use, commonly uses domain fronting tactics, which you know, obfuscates um, where these malicious files are actually coming from in a way that to the user, they look like they're coming from legitimate CDNs. So the problem with that, or the struggle, I guess, challenge with that is that, you know, traditional so social engineering security awareness training that we give to our, our end users, these those methods that we teach them to identify things like this are just not going to work. So it makes it you know even more difficult for them to kind of be our first line of defense and no doubt makes this much more successful at the end of the day. Um, so when you look at the virus total image, which I know you probably can't actually see, um, but if you could see it, what it would, would tell you or show you is the link between one cluster of domains and then some sock Googleish samples that we have. 
Again, we see file names that are associated with IE, Firefox, Chrome, Opera. Uh, we also see commonalities that we use in our deep, vis uh, deep visibility queries that point to these campaigns. So for example, um, you can't see it, but there's one really long URL in that, uh, in that image there. Uh, and it ends with one uh, x1.gif. Um, that sort of file is a result of the post commands that are created during these attacks. And we see that pattern across many, many samples. So it helps us really build in some of those thoughtful queries that really have been very fruitful in helping us watch and monitor these attacks lately. I'm going to go to the next slide, Brian. There we go. Uh, so in a separate investigation this month, we've had a few of them, uh, but we came across a Oculus JavaScript file that was impersonating a, a Chrome plugin. Again, the user was presented with a zip file titled something like Chrome update.zip. When they clicked it, it, uh, it executed this JavaScript file. There's some, uh, the process tree presented here in this slide. To gain persistence, Oculus has been seen creating registry keys um, that point back then to a PowerShell file um, that kicks off and runs the same JavaScript file. So it really is um, uh, building in some, some sophisticated, well, maybe not sophisticated, but repetitive uh, persistence mechanisms. You'll also see here on the right-hand side, a list of SHA-1 hashes. These have been, uh, they're, they're hashes of files that we observed being dropped on these machines post-infection. Uh, analysis of these hashes, uh, show them as being a net support remote access tool. Um, it's a remote administration tool that was actually um, has been known to be used by the cyber criminal group TA505. So a couple of things there that you can use for hunting in your own environment or observation. Um, and again, there is a, a table there, I think that shows some of the typical tools used by this group. They are very similar to a lot of the other tools that we see threat actors using at this point in time. I think the biggest differentiator, although, I mean, everybody's a special snowflake to some degree, but the biggest differentiator is this common, um, you know, 100 out of 100% of the time, drive-by download is that attack vector. So um, that's Sakolish. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, I, I can't say how active we've seen these guys in the last month. It's um, they're probably the biggest spiking single campaign that, that we've been observing over the last month. So last two months, really. So um, really glad we had a chance to talk about it. Uh, so my understanding with Scott Golish is that the majority of their malicious domains, their social engineering people are clicking into are are hosted by these by these bulletproof hosters and for our listeners who may not be familiar with what that means a, a bulletproof hoster is like a mini isp that uh that, that their entire business plan their entire their value proposition is that they will not talk with law enforcement they will not share any information with law enforcement and they will delete they will destroy um any data before anybody before it's captured and basically you can put whatever you want up right you can put malware you can host botnets you can put sell drugs or child pornography other or other contraband things like that they just don't care and uh you know it's it's an interesting their their legal defense 
and it's not a legal defense. It is extremely fragile, but their, their plausible deniability is a statement that, well, we can't control. All our job is to provide access to the internet. This is generally what you hear from a bulletproof poster. We just provide a path to the internet. We don't, um, we don't, uh, we, we can't control what people put on. That's not our responsibility to control what people put on the internet. That's theirs. We just provide the path. I, I mean, to me, that's BS, but, um, but that's, that's what you hear often. So, I mean, when you deal with these, and a lot of times these bulletproof posters are in countries that may not work with the United States. Um, they may not, uh, they're in, um, uh, they, they have these kind of like easily, you know, if, if one's taken down again, kind of like a, a criminal group, well, they are a criminal group. They can come up in another uh, infrastructure somewhere else. What kind of challenges do these bulletproof hosters lend to an investigator? So I think you can kind of look at this from two different perspectives. There's the enterprise security practitioner's perspective. And, you know, really from you start thinking about monitoring and blocking data, you're kind of playing a constant whack-a-mole. Um, these folks are, are constantly moving. So um, it's difficult to block based on those atomic indicators of compromise, as you've kind of mentioned a few times here, Brian. But you know, there's you can't use abuse complaints to remove content either, because again, it's you know, the the provider is uh, not frankly concerned about your your issues. So it makes it very difficult and very important to, again, have that layered approach to security. Endpoint detection is going to be very important um, because, again, uh, the, the firewall and perimeter defense mechanisms are going to be difficult to ever really lock down. Um, I think there's obviously a lot of law enforcement concerns too, and that's certainly more your area than mine. So I'll let you speak to that. But, uh, but yeah, from a from a enterprise security perspective, it really makes your other your other detection mechanisms even more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's probably the majority of our listeners, what they have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But yeah, I, I agreed. So <clears throat> that was my experience with, uh, uh, with law enforcement. And yeah, I mean, the U.S., we have this mutual legal assistance treaty, you refer to it as an MLAT. We have extradition treaties and we can lock down uh, individuals you know, individual domains and, but, you know, with these, so many of these bulletproof posters, they put themselves in countries, they, they know who doesn't deal with the U.S., they know who doesn't work with the U.S., who doesn't have these inland agreements, and they'll put themselves there. Um, in order to really, for law enforcement to make any good progress, like I said, we got to make arrests, we got to put people in jail, otherwise they'll just come back, they'll come back and rebrand themselves, they'll, 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 different infrastructure, and, um, and that's the big challenge if they're operating in countries that don't wanna work with the US and they know where they are. And, and um, you know, other situations like, you know, can deal with Russia where, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they do operate as part of the mutual legal assistance treaty and they end up not even, they, 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 they don't follow it. Honestly, they use it as a recruiting mechanism. Uh, Naranjan, I'm sorry, I know I'm gonna cut you short, but I'll share a very quick story um, from the FBI days, where it was one of the early on card scraping malware cases. And this threat actor, um, 
literally he he was smart enough to figure out card scraping malware and, and memory scraping malware to pull out credit cards and then his exfiltration methodology was email he emailed it back to himself directly and uh a little bit of open source research into that email address sees him out uh, using the same email address out on um, code forums, bug forums, out just talking about life with his actual home address in Russia, all of that listed. So basically we had the guy dead to rights. So we launched the whole mutual legal assistance treaty, work with the Department of State with the Russian counterparts, a long process thinking we're gonna bring him, get him extradited for, uh, for, for his crimes. About four, three, four months later, we observed from other channels, identical modus operandi and malware being used, malware types being used uh, in nation state attacks out of Russia. So, I mean, <laughs> we can't draw that line definitively, but a big part of me is like, man, that's, I just saw that in this attack, which we have a pending mutual legal assistance treaty request. And now he's working for a, a, a nation state threat actor. So, Interesting, yeah, just just these challenges and trying to work through these international legal agreements. I mean, your US, Australia, UK, Netherlands, any all these different like these are really, really good investigators. They're trying to do the right thing, but there's just a lot of uh, challenges out there to actually make so, so never think that they're not trying and doing everything they can um, to take action and put these guys down. It's just there's a lot of different levels of, of uh, challenge. So yeah, all interesting stuff. Naranjan, I mean, we had five minutes. I, we knew this was going to happen, right? We knew this was going to happen. There was so much. The, the Watchtower report this month is a literal gold mine of threat intelligence. And if you are a Watchtower customer, you know we've already hunted for all of these things within your environment. And if you haven't heard from us, you're safe, right? And that's a nice feeling of um, a peace of mind. Um, we don't have time. These are other things that we've covered. Naranjan, I'm going to give you a, why don't you grab one? What's interesting out of this selection? What would you like me to go to that you would like to talk to our, our audience about? Uh, maybe solar winds. <clears throat> we had something interesting that we found today. Um, here we are. Yeah. So a quick recap. So early July, solar winds released an advisory on uh, one of their FTP application that was vulnerable and uh, a fellow company did mention that that particular vulnerability was used in a limited targeted attack and uh, the vulnerability got tagged as CV2021-35211. But they did mention in their research that uh, if the vulnerability was exploited, there were uh, CMD, PowerShell, or MSSTA launched a child process to serveview.exe if uh, on a vulnerable environment. So the vul vulnerability was targeting specific version of this particular FTP software. I believe it was 15.2. Uh, so we had our deep visibility rules written uh, as soon as we saw this particular advisory. And today we spotted uh, an attack and um, you can see that in the console Sentinel-1 blocked and killed that particular attack. Um, and when reviewing, reviewing the timeline, we saw serveview.exe launching CMD and PowerShell as their successive uh, you know, child processes. And there was this PowerShell blob on decoding, gave us hint to a C2IP 
and the ip was live till today morning ist and uh, i mean sitaram did block the attack before that but as a researcher i was trying to get more intelligence and uh, on further decoding of successive levels we were able to identify a cobol strike 32 bit uh, dll file that gets injected into memory through reflective loading uh, and so yeah so the main reason why we picked this particular topic is like an advisory that got released on july 13th which was not widely talked uh, or reported or written about our deep visibility query helped us identify an attack after 45 days or so and uh, we have included this into our watchdog report as well and uh, you know that's the uh, passion we have to deliver the best for our customers as threat hunters you know naranja that's great and i mean i love the fact that <clears throat> watchtower is an organization we're not waiting for other people to say hey these are the attacks you should be worried about we're finding them in in live and it's i'm not going to say it's easy but we can do this because we're sentinel one we have yeah. access to tens of millions of endpoints that are being attacked on a daily basis and just like we see in the box here sentinel one kills and quarantines but that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about it and still hunt for it does sentinel one lock and kill it out of the box yes but we still need to make sure that that we're ensuring there's not uh maybe people are in detect only policy maybe you know there's all the kinds of reasons or there could be variations again and this is why we hunt on behavioral hunts not atomic ilcs if the threat actor should come up with something new and completely innovative where they've bridged original malware over something new and amazing if we've been able to identify characteristics of that malware that they will identify it across families across many iterations we're still hunting for what to, we're hunting for what hasn't happened yet if that makes sense right call it predictive right. hunting you know we're doing this in a way we're not searching for iocs we might do that a little bit but we're searching for things that that are going to be in future iterations um and that's why we focus on these things so we're making our own intelligence we're identifying what's happening in real time and we're hunting in real time for our customers and now we're telling this audience about um how we do it because we want to share so great thank you so much it's we our time is up oh, man there's so much good information here but please do download the report read it enjoy it uh and everybody have a great month we'll talk to you again in uh in a month on whatever comes up in september thanks bye very guys. much thanks everyone bye bye